It's the Adam Ragusea Podcast, episode 54, coming to you from my alma mater, Penn State University, where I am, at this instant, the invited speaker at Penn State's annual food science banquet. Thank you for having me, everybody. Woo, Woo indeed. And thank you for letting me record my remarks for publication in my podcast feed. I do not have the bandwidth to write a good speech and a good podcast in the same week. So I have to double dip whenever I get a speaking invitation. Double dipping when permitted has been one of my secrets to success in my career. It's how I maintain my reputation as a miracle worker. That was a Star Trek reference for like five people. Chris, Chris Siegler got it. All right. So this brief talk is called The Problem with Food Science. And I'm sure that the decorated scholars in the uh, room and all the scholars in training are real excited to hear what some YouTuber thinks is the problem with their discipline. Indeed, I have no food science or other culinary credentials whatsoever. I majored in music here at Penn State, and I was a journalism professor at Mercer University in Georgia when a cooking video that I made for fun randomly went viral a few years ago and a new and better career dropped into my lap. All I know about food science is that which an untrained mind like mine can glean from the literature. I readily admit that. Therefore, I have not come into the lion's den to pick a fight. The Nittany Lion's Den. <laughs> Do they still have the last of the real Nittany Lions like taxidermied in the library? Is that still there? It's in Forest Resources Building. Oh, okay, it's in a different building. Okay, so when I went here, it was like deep inside the stacks in a glass case, and it was like horribly, horrifyingly decomposed, and you would just kind of turn a corner and be like, ah! Huh. Anyways. I don't mean to pick a fight by getting in front of a bunch of food scientists and delivering a paper called The Problem with Food Science. The problem is really just my problem, and it's my responsibility to address my problems myself, and that's part of why I'm here. I am not here to pick a fight. Though if you want to have a fight on the internet, go to Reddit or to Stack Exchange or anywhere that nerds congregate and talk about what happens to micropores in a metal pan surface upon heating. Anybody here like Alton Brown? Anybody here old enough? Yeah, okay, some people. So 20 years ago, Alton Brown got on TV and asserted as fact that tiny holes and scratches and other cavities in the surface of a pan will contract and will fill in when the metal is heated. Metals do generally expand when heated, right? Right? Okay. The molecules move faster and faster. They take up more space. They effectively push away from each other. So Alton imagined that he imagined sort of like a ring of metal surrounding a tiny pit in the pan surface. And he figured that's what happens is when the metal expands, that ring around the hole will contract the way like an asthmatic's airway contracts when swollen, something like that. Alton figures that the empty space within that little micropore on the pan surface will provide the path of least resistance for the metal around the, uh, the rim of that little pit. So as the metal expands, it effectively flows into the pit, filling in the pit and getting you a smoother pan surface with less surface area in contact with the food, and thus food will be less inclined to stick to the metal 
if you start it cooking in a pan that's already really, really hot because the heat has filled in the micropores. Alton made this claim in Good Eats, episode uh, three, season seven, when he was making an omelet. He said, you, just, you gotta heat the pan empty to close up the pores in the metal so that the, the liquid egg does not flow into those imperfections and get stuck in there as it heats and the, the proteins in the egg form complexes with the metal molecules, etc., etc." How does Alton Brown know this to be true? He doesn't say. Because when people like Alton or me get in front of a camera to talk about food, we are creating infotainment. I mean, we're trying to be somewhat rigorous and minimally accurate, sure. And we're trying to communicate actual knowledge that will actually help actual people cook actual food a little better or a little more easily. But we're not writing a paper, we're making a show, right? A good show generally requires some degree of showmanship to execute. And stopping three times in every sentence to cite your sources is not good showmanship. For people listening who have not done serious research in a scholarly context, let's explain what an inline citation is or an in-text citation. It's when you tell people where you got the information that you're writing down as you are writing it down and therefore as they are reading it. So your sentence maybe starts, metal expands upon heating, and there, maybe in parentheses, you write, Johnson 2005 or whatever. And then at the end, you give full citations where you say who Johnson is and which of his papers published in 2005 you are referring to and how other people can find it, etc. So in scholarly writing, which things, like which claims do you have to attribute to an outside source like that? Anybody? Which claims? Yeah. Go ahead. Anything scientific? Anything scientific, she says. Anybody want to refine that? Something that isn't common knowledge. Something that isn't common knowledge, sure. Basically all claims require a citation with the two big exceptions, one being common knowledge. If something is either self-evidently true or so well established that it goes without saying, you don't need to cite that. You don't need, to, you don't need a source to back you up when you claim that the sky is blue. Sometimes it's blue. The sky is not blue for many, many months out of the year in central Pennsylvania, which is the main reason I don't live up north anymore. They call Penn State the blue and white. More like the gray and white, am I right? Oh. Anyway, uncontested claims generally do not warrant a citation in scholarly writing. Would that encompass my claim that metals expand when heated? Because that's so well established that I don't need to back it up with evidence. Metals expand when heated. I see the faculty table giving me the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing you don't have to cite, of course, is your own original research. Assuming that this is the paper in which you are documenting that specific research. If I did an experiment and I went to write it up in a paper, I could simply describe my experiment, write down my findings. I would not need to put in parenthetical citations making it clear that my findings are attributable to Ragusea 2023. This is Ragusea 2023, this paper, right? If I cite my own previously published original research in a new piece of research, then yeah, I gotta explicitly cite myself. That's called self-citation. And I've certainly observed scientists 
appearing to shoehorn self-citations into their papers because it makes them look super important. But uh, you got to tell people where you got your info. You got to show your receipts unless you created the knowledge yourself by doing original research that you are documenting here and now. And the distinction between original research and other kinds of research is... Novelty. Novelty, I hear. Sure. I used to think that original research was a redundant term. Uh, I figured that when you do an experiment, or you go in the field to observe something firsthand, I figured there you are searching, not researching, right? I figured that research is when you search through other people's searches, right? You look through texts in which people documented their experiments or their field observations. You absorb what they learned, and then you compile lots of different people's findings into a single text known as a secondary source. The primary source is the paper documenting the experiment or whatever first-hand observation it is. The secondary source is the encyclopedia entry or the literature review or the YouTube video where someone compiled information from lots of different primary sources into a single secondary source that makes no contribution to humanity's total body of knowledge, but it does help individual humans get read in to a topic without having to redo all of the research that you did to compile the findings from all of those different primary sources. If people had to effectively redo the research done by the encyclopedia author, it would be re-research, right? Or so I figured. I figured the experiment is the search for knowledge, and when I write about someone else's experiment, I am researching with re being the Latin prefix indicating repetition, to do something again. Therefore, I figured original research was redundant in the same way that original origin would be redundant. Original research is just a search, I figured. Just call it a search. Then I looked up the etymology of the word research. It's not what I thought it is. Here, the prefix re is from Old French, where it was used to express great effort. And search just comes from the old French word for search. So research does not mean search again. It means search really hard. And that's why original research is not redundant. Am I the only person in the room who just learned that? Nice. Thank you. One person raised their hand. <laughs> Isn't it nice that we can all learn and grow together? We are. There it is. Hey, should we do that one for real? We are. Boom. Anyway, in publishable scholarly communication, anything that isn't original research being presented in that communication, any other claim of fact that isn't self-evident, you have to cite a primary source to back up what you're saying as you go in scholarly communication. I don't do scholarly communication, and neither does Alton Brown. We are infotainers, and citations usually aren't particularly infotaining. So we usually just say what we know, or what we think we know. We cite our sources, unless we have a particular reason not to, and usually we have a particular reason not to. It's boring and irrelevant. Sometimes we cite them, but usually we don't. 
I mean, I don't cite all of my sources directly in the video or the podcast, but sometimes I try to put links into the, the description nonetheless, to at least to the, the, the big pieces of research I'm relying on. Alton Brown, making TV in 2003, had no description box available to him. 2003 was the year like half of you were born, right? That's horrifying. So, Alton threw out this claim that heat closes off the imperfections in a pan surface, and he did not cite his sources. He did not show his work. So I don't know how he came to that conclusion. And I'm not mad about it. The man was making cable television, for God's sake. And his program was far more rigorous than most other infotainments on cable or anywhere else. And I think that he did the best anyone could in that context at that time. But I watched that episode of Good Eats probably when I was a junior here at Penn State 20 years ago, living in this absolute rat hole apartment on West College just past Atherton. You know that big disgusting brown tower that's behind the Minute Mart there? Anybody lived in that one? That's College Park. What's that? College Park. I don't know what it's called. Is that what it's called now? Maybe. Well, I don't want to say it because then the guy will sue me. <laughs> Whatever, it's true. Hallways smelled like barf all the time. There is no community on earth for which wall-to-wall -wall carpet is less suited <laughs> than you people. I watched that episode of Good Eats in 2003 when I was an impressionable young person, such as yourselves, and I simply integrated this claim about pan surfaces into my programming. And it stayed in there until 2019, when I fell bass-ackwards into internet micro-celebrity, talking about food and cooking on YouTube. And I can't find it, but I'm pretty sure that I uncritically parroted this claim about pan surfaces at least once in one of my early videos before I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. Are we sure the metal expands inward as Alton describes? Wouldn't it expand outward toward the, the rim of the pan? Would that not have the effect of expanding the scratches and the pits and stuff in the pan surface? And so I went on the Googles and I discovered thread after thread on Reddit and Stack Exchange where people are debating this question, often very angrily. Like me, many of the people participating in those threads had tried to follow Alton Brown's tracks on that one, and they failed. He may have gotten this idea from Shirley Carrier, who's another like food science communicator who appeared on Good Eats many times. Carrier makes that same claim about pan pours in one of her books, so people think Alton might have gotten it from her, but no one can figure out where she got it. We want to know, is there some bit of scientific literature where this question of pan pores is directly addressed through experimentation? If Alton Brown had made Good Eats in accordance with scholarly publishing standards, he would have cited his sources and we would have been able to track those sources down and examine them, scrutinize them, maybe see if Alton didn't read the results quite right. Lord knows I've made internet content about studies that some people think I didn't read quite right. And here we see why our professors at Penn State and elsewhere browbeat us into citing every contestable claim of fact in our writing. The old academic publishing system of citation created proto-hypertexts. One text links 
to many others in a way that was made far more immediate by the internet and the innovation of the HTML hyperlink, but it did not begin with the internet. When one links text to another, to another, to another, to another, we can follow the chain of learning and reasoning all the way back to its ultimate origin, and that is invaluable. Scholarly literature is kind of like one giant, constantly developing brain. And something like Good Eats exists outside of that neural network. So at this point, I don't think I know what happens to the imperfections in a pan surface when it heats, let alone what practical effect those imperfections have on cooking. So let's do a voice vote, okay? Those who think the imperfections in the pan surface will fill up when heated, signify by saying I. You wanna know how they voted? I wanna know how they voted, but I also wanna go back in time to right before I gave this talk, and I wanna trim my beard with Manscaped, sponsor of this episode. Get 20% off and free shipping with my code Ragusia at manscaped.com. Yeah, I don't get out of the house very much anymore, and I am somewhat out of practice when it comes to elevating my appearance a little bit for public display. At least this morning, I gave my beard a trim with my waterproof Manscaped electric trimmer. This thing is so sharp and accurate, and the guide is really easy to use to make sure that I'm cutting it to the desired length. You know, Lauren was on me for a while about uh, getting my new beard professionally groomed at some hipster barbershop, and I was like, no thanks, that's going to take an hour out of my day, all told. And once I'm locked in the chair, I'll be forced to make conversation with a stranger, which is basically my idea of the worst thing in the world. And even if they do make my beard look great. It's just going to grow back the way it was within a couple of days. So I got a grooming kit from Manscaped instead, and I've been taking care of business myself. And my wife is now quite pleased with my face, or at least she's pleased with the hair upon my face. And you can too. Consider using my code Ragusia to get 20% off the Performance Package 4.0 from Manscaped. It includes the Lawn Mower 4.0 Trimmer, the Weed Whacker 2.0 Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, yes, that's exactly what it sounds like, Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner, Performance boxer briefs and a travel bag to hold everything. That is the Performance Package 4.0. Hey, it's April, and April is Testicular Cancer Awareness Month, and that is the most common form of cancer in men age 15 to 35, which is the core audience demographic of the Ragusea family of programs. So if you're listening to this, odds are you are at particular risk of testicular cancer, and you should be doing regular self-examinations. Manscaped wanted me to mention that because they are trying to raise awareness with their We Save Balls initiative. You can, of course, use uh, Manscaped trimming products on more than just your beard, and uh, yeah, they really are a skin saver with their foolproof guides and such. The Lawnmower 4.0 even comes with an LED light so that you can trim accurately, even in dark cramped conditions, shall we say. The Performance Package 4.0 can be yours now at manscaped.com if you use my code Ragusia at checkout. You also get free shipping. That's 20% off at manscaped.com with my code Ragusia plus free shipping. Thank you, Manscaped. Anyway, we were in the room with the Penn State Food Science Club talking about uh, Alton Brown's claim that preheating a pan causes micropores in the surface of the metal to close up. Those who think the imperfections in the pan surface will fill up when heated 
signify by saying I. Those opposed say nay. nay. Whoa, everyone said nay. A pan in the oven is gonna heat pretty evenly, right? But a pan on the stovetop will not, especially on uh, an electrical resistance or an induction burner, right? The horizontal bottom of the pan is gonna get a lot hotter than the vertical rim of the pan. Um, well, gas stoves are different. Gas stoves are so inefficient and they hemorrhage so much heat out the sides of the pan that the sides also get incredibly hot, which is super irritating because stuff that's stuck on the side of the pan tends to overcook and eventually burn. My source for that claim, by the way, is Ragusia 2021, <laughs> the vid that I made about why I don't really like gas stoves titled My Gas Problem, where I used a thermal imaging camera to observe how different stovetops heat the pan and the air around the pan. I'll admit that self-citation feels real good. Anyway, on an electrical burner especially, the rim of the pan can stay relatively cool, depending on the pan's dimensions and the, the burner's dimensions and the specific metal or the alloy being used, I imagine. And if the outer rim of the pan is significantly cooler than the inner bottom of the pan, it's conceivable to me that the cool rim might, might restrict thermal expansion of the hot bottom. And I expect there will be memes of me saying hot bottom within hours of me putting this on the internet, because there's virtually no vocabulary you can use to describe food and cooking that won't sound kind of sexual to a boy on the internet. And at this point, I've just stopped trying to avoid all but the most obvious minefields. So there you go. It's conceivable to me that the rim of the pan functions like a collar, forcing the thermal expansion of the surface metal inward instead of outward. And thus it really might fill up the tiny gaps in the pan. Sounds possible to me? I wish I could directly investigate this question the way that I could do with some other ideas and then I can self-cite all night long, but doing so would require a much more powerful microscopic camera than I have and that camera would need to be able to withstand enormous heat or it would need to be able to do the job safely from like a meter away and that's not a setup that I have at home. And of course I have Google scholared this question for hours. I can find no scientific literature directly addressing the thermal expansion or contraction of pan pores. And I've looked far beyond the food science discipline and into the materials science discipline. And I found some related research, but nothing observing a piece of metal, the general shape of a pan, heated unidirectionally the way a pan is. If only there was a great university with a great food science program and a great material science program where student researchers could collaborate to investigate this question. But alas, we do anything for money. Mm, we'll get back to money. <laughs> this topic is to me emblematic of a phenomenon that I deal with every day in my job, and that is the giant hole in food science literature. And this hole includes topics of common curiosity among home cooks like me that nonetheless lack an obvious constituency to fund investigations into said topics. 
What food scientists like y'all tend to investigate is stuff of interest to the food industry, right? Large-scale commercial food processing and manufacturing, or you tend to investigate questions of interest to governments and foundations and other grant makers who want to fund important science, studies with major implications for public health or food security or something like that. So much of the stuff that I wonder about as a home cook is in the donut hole, which is between those two extremes. And so I often have to investigate questions myself, like I wanted to know if bronze dye extruded pasta really delivers more sauce to your mouth compared to pasta that's extruded out of a Teflon coated dye, which is much smoother and therefore has less surface area. So people say less sauce sticks to it or absorbs through it or something. I figured that uh, that bit of pasta folk wisdom might be addressed in the scientific literature. I found one paper repeating the claim that bronze dye pasta retains more sauce, but it wasn't an original observation. They cited that claim to somebody else. They were attributing it to another paper that I went and chased down. And in the second paper that I found, the primary source, I discovered the origin of the claim in the literature that bronze dye pasta absorbs more sauce than Teflon dye pasta. The origin of that claim is folk wisdom. Some consumers report that bronze dye pasta retains more sauce, is basically what they said in the primary source. Folks are saying was the source. At least they were upfront about it, far more upfront than the authors of the secondary source who simply stated as fact that bronze dye pasta carries more sauce. And that's why your professors tell you to never rely on a secondary source to support a claim, right? You gotta go back to the primary source or else we're just making a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Every single time a claim changes hands, copy of a copy and some reproduction artifacts are gonna be inevitable. Secondary sources are a great way to find information but they cannot be your ultimate destination. Anyway, I decided that I had to do my own direct investigation of this sauce retention question. So I devised a little experiment where I tossed a set quantity of noodles in a set quantity of sauce and I, I weighed everything and then I painstakingly transferred the noodles from one plate to another with a fork as though I were eating them and then I weighed the results and I observed no significant difference in the weight of sauce clinging to one kind of pasta or the other. And some people criticized me in the, the comments of that video, as they always do, and sometimes rightly. They said, hey, your methods were unscientific, Adam. You only repeated the experiment like three times. You need to do it way more times and way more carefully to gather valid data. And to them, I say, granted, sure. But then again, when I'm investigating questions about which procedure will make food more delicious to me, I figure that scientific rigor, like y'all do, is kind of overkill, or it could be overkill. Because when I'm investigating whether an ingredient or a technique makes a perceivable difference in a dish, I figure if the difference is so small that it can only be documented with publishable science, then that difference is too small for me to concern myself with. Differences that actually matter should smack me right in the face, right? I shouldn't need to repeat the experiment more than once or twice. I shouldn't need to do a blind taste test with a trained tasting panel like the kinds that I'm guessing some of y'all have worked with or will work with. 
differences so subtle that they can only be observed with that level of rigor are, I would argue, de minimis, to borrow terminology from a profession far less noble than food science. I wrote that joke assuming that Penn State's law school was still safely miles away in Carlisle, but apparently you guys moved it to the main campus here, so never mind. A difference in taste or texture or whatever that isn't glaringly obvious is too small to matter in home cooking because we're not sending a person to the moon, we're just making a plate of pasta and the stakes just aren't that high. Which is another reason why questions like these often go unaddressed in the scientific literature. I'm still curious about the answers though and I feel like students, particularly undergraduate students, are in a unique position to investigate culinary questions that lots of people wonder about but don't really matter that much, and so no serious researcher tackles them? You're in college, and college is when you're supposed to indulge your curiosity, right? Impact be damned. Though I'm sure your esteemed faculty would like for you to consider impact for when they go to write their annual reports. But I'm curious, I'm wondering if anyone here has any kind of like idea or research proposal bubbling in your mind, something that like about home cooking, something that would answer a question that comes up in home cooking, but as far as you know, is unaddressed in the literature and is likely to stay unaddressed in the literature because no one with money cares. I have some ideas, but you know, y'all get any ideas? Anybody want to pitch something? Will you come on up? I have to go up there. You don't have to, but I'm asking if you will. Because that way I can mic you. Yeah, I can. Fantastic. Come on up. What's your name? Kira. Okay, Kira, what do you got? Like, do those, like, disposable pans really affect, like, the baking of things? Oh, you're talking about, like, the aluminum ones? Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah. Or just, like, any pan in general. Like, does that actually affect baking time? Fantastic. Love it. Thank you very much. Please do that one. Anybody else? Over yes, over here, so that you're in the camera frame. Um, I'm so professional. <laughs> I've always heard that... Oh, introduce yourself, I'm sorry. Oh, um, my name is Laura Terribaletti. Um, she I've, brought me here, so... Yes, I did. <laughs> Blame her. Uh, I've always heard that if you um, bake a batch of cookies and you want to keep them softer for longer, you should put a piece of bread in with it. And I'm guessing it has something to do with water activity, but I'm not exactly sure. And I've researched it and I haven't found a lot about it, so... Love it. Fantastic. Thank you. Here's one that I've... Oh, go ahead. Come on up. Uh, Sydney it is, right? Yeah. Come on up. I'm Introduce yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Sydney. It's in the same vein as cookies, but I do a lot of like egg-free baking because I have a roommate that can't eat eggs. And I just wonder like what all these egg replacements have to do with the moisture and how long they keep. Because like my applesauce ones, day and max. But like my egg ones, like four or five days, they're soft. So. Love it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Come on up, yeah. Introduce yourself. I'm Betty. Um, so my fiance is a chef, and he always, he was taught you always boil potatoes in cold water. Does that do anything? And if you start to boil your pasta water without the pasta in it, is it still okay to use hot water, or do you have to use cold water? Thank you for that, fantastic. That, the, there's so many potato ones that drive me crazy. Like you have to start them boiling in cold water, or you can't put cold milk into hot potatoes. 
And there's like, like I've tested that one myself and it seems to make no difference, but it, what I try to remind myself is that like what I do in my kitchen is not what like a professional chef does in their kitchen. The biggest difference probably being that they're working at a larger scale, right? And you know, when you're, when you're working with a giant pot of potatoes over a little burner, yeah, maybe introducing a bunch of cold liquid in there could slow things down conceivably. Don't know. I'm curious about like beans and, and, and intestinal gases, as I'm sure many of you are. Um, as near as I can tell, there's like one study from, it's from India in the 80s, where they looked at like, if you discard the bean soak water, will that make the beans easier to digest? And I have found nothing more recent about that. And I feel like if we want to get people off of, you know, meat and get them eating more sustainable protein sources, and we know from other, I mean, I know that it is in like consumer behavior literature that people don't choose beans because they're going to be embarrassed of the results, right? Anybody who can figure out a way to minimize the deleterious effects of beans would probably be doing the planet a pretty great service. So I would love to see some more research about that. What I'll tell you now is that those one, two, three, four pitches that we heard, I loved all four of those. So what I'll do right now is if you need money to do that, you can have it from me, okay? In fact, that'll go for like everybody in this room. If you have a research project that there's, there's no one else who's gonna pay for it because it's just sort of a minor home cooking question, okay? Write up a proposal, get a faculty member to sign off of it, on off it, and like with like a little budget. And as long as it's not outrageously expensive, just email it to me and I will just, I'll pay for it, okay? I'll, I'll, uh, I'll you know, I'll funnel, a, I'll, I'll make a donation to the university and they'll find a way to give you the money and if they can't sort that out bureaucratically, I'll just cut you a check, okay? Okay, so that is my promise to all of you who are in this room right now, all you students, grown-ups, find, find somebody else. All of you students, any research idea that doesn't have an obvious constituency to fund it, but it involves home cooking or would be useful to home cooks, send me a proposal with a little budget on it, faculty member signs off on it, I will make sure that you have whatever money you need in order to do that. And I would love it if you would present your results on one of my little programs, but we can cross that bridge when we come to it. And with that, I'm about done here. Does anyone wanna do any Q&A with me or are you kinda done with me? <laughs> there were a lot of good people in that room, especially the young ones, going to make some fine employees for someone someday. Such people can be hard to find, but it's a lot easier when you do your hiring with Indeed, sponsor of this episode. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire job candidates all in one place. If you're running an operation that you need to staff up, Indeed is where you want to be. Don't waste time bouncing from job board to job board. 81% of U.S. online job seekers search for jobs on Indeed every month, according to Comscore. In the minute that I've been talking about Indeed, 16 hires were made, according to Indeed's worldwide data, or at least that is the average per minute on Indeed. Indeed does the hard work of hiring for you. You sponsor a job, they'll match you with quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description right when you post it. So with Indeed, you can just start hiring really fast. Reach out to the matching candidates through Indeed Instant Match. Invite them to apply for your job, and they are three times more 
more likely to apply than a candidate who simply finds your job in search. That's according to Indeed's U.S. data. You can do virtual interviews through Indeed. You can administer skill assessments, you know, tests. Join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows that when you are growing your own business, you got to make every dollar count. That's why with Indeed, you only pay for quality applications that match your must-have job requirements. So visit Indeed.com slash Ragusea to start hiring right now. Indeed.com slash Ragusea. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Anyway, the Q&A portion of the evening. I can take a few. Yeah, all right. Here's one cue. Now, uh, of all your videos, which one has been the most satisfying to work on? Question is, of all of my videos, which one is the most satisfying to work on? Um, my favorite one is probably one that I did about yeast extract, um, like Marmite and Vegemite and stuff like that. Um, do you know how they make that? It's like, that's like yeast guts, right? Um, it was Eustace von Liebig uh, got some like spent brewer's yeast from Burton-on-Trent and was trying to figure out a way to turn it into some marketable product. And he tried just kind of holding it at different temperatures. And what he found was that like, he could induce yeast autolysis at a certain temperature. Um, I forget what it was. And you know, the, the yeast cells just basically destroy themselves. They spill their little guts into the solution. And then he tasted that solution and it tasted like demi-glace, like it tasted like, or soy sauce or something. Like it's incredibly umami-y. Can one of you research a better word for that? <laughs> the adjectival form of umami? Figure that out. Um, anyways, and I, so it was, it was, it was super fun because what I wanted to do is like, I wanted to kind of reach, you know, there's no way for me to like see that lysate, right? Because by the time you buy it in the store, they've reduced it down. Like they boil it down to a syrup with a bunch of, you know, with like vegetable stock and stuff. Um, and you, you can't see like, what was that? sort of clearish brown liquid that Eustace von Liebig saw when he, you know, when he opened up that beaker of, of yeast lysate. And so what I had a lot of fun doing was, because it's the temperature that you want to hold it at is really lower than anything you can hold reliably on a home stove or anything like that. So I just, I went to the CVS and I got a, like a heating pad, like the one you'd put on your back if your back was sore. And I like wrapped up a bowl full of water and bread yeast that I bought at the store. Um, and I just held it at like the right temperature overnight, got it the next morning and it just worked like a charm. It was absolutely fantastic. And it tasted amazing. And I was like, wow, this is, it was absolutely fascinating. What was great about it was that it didn't taste bitter. Cause if you ever had Marmite or any of those condiments that the, the Brits and people formerly colonized by the Brits seemed to like, except for us, we're the only ones who don't tend to care for it. Um, if you taste that stuff, it's super bitter and it's because it has uh, yeast uh, hops residue, right? There's a certain amount of hops, bitter compounds from the hops that remain in that lysate and they, just, they do things to de-bitter it, but they can't do everything. And it's like, you can't use too much of it, otherwise it's gonna make your dish bitter. And here I had this substance that I boiled down on my stove and it, it was just, it was the best thing ever and it didn't taste bitter at all. I was like, this is vegan demi-glace. And that was super satisfying and exciting and I just was excited by the possibilities of having such a product. And then when it got really disappointing is when I tried to figure out a way to like an actual like workable recipe for it at home. Because the problem is that like you're, you know, like a, like a jar of bread yeast this big, 
you know, it costs like, what, six, seven bucks at the grocery store, and it gets you like an amount of finished reduced lysate that's like, you know, it's a tablespoon or something like that, right? It's not, not a lot. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but the, the little dry yeast granules that they, they put in, that they, you, you bake with, they're usually packaged with a, an emulsifier to help the yeast rehydrate when you put them into your dough or whatever. And like the particular emulsifier used by the good people at the, oh, what's the, what's the really popular yeast brand? Fleischmann's. Fleischmann's, yeah. The particular, you know, sorbet or whatever they use as an emulsifier over the Fleischmann's company is like rated safe for human consumption, but in like the tiny trace amounts that you would find it in like a loaf of bread. Once it's like concentrated down into a syrup, I have no idea if it could potentially be harmful to someone, no clue whatsoever. Plus it also thickens it, which is a good or a bad thing. I don't know. It might also have been the cell wall debris thickening it. I don't know. Anyways, um, I just couldn't, I could not, and I, then I tried like growing some yeast. You know, I tried like making like a, like a, a, um, no, no, no. What's the uh, what's the the the, the sweet uh, the sweet byproduct of sugar making is molasses. Thank you very much. Okay, sorry. I I suffer from aphasia, and that's why I normally speak from notes. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, I you know I made like a like a molasses solution and put some yeast in there to try to get the yeast to reproduce. You know, maybe I figured you could like grow a big enough culture of yeast in some molasses water, and then I was like, oh, I'm making a hooch. Um, this is probably illegal. Uh, and then also like it's 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 hard to it's hard to make alcohol like it's there's a reason that people study to do that and like mine sm smelled kind of stanky and didn't seem to the yeast didn't really seem to be reproducing much as far as I could tell but then again I don't know really how I would know that like I, I tried asking them and say much um, so that's when it got really frustrating and uh, if anyone has any ideas about how to grow a very large yeast culture at home Please talk to me about it, because we could maybe collaborate on a recipe for homemade yeast extract, which we could call vegan demi-gloss, and it would probably get a lot more clicks, and would probably like be a good thing for the world. So, you know, hit me up if you have any ideas about that. Any other questions? Yes? I remember I watched a video from you a while back about um, you trying to create salt hopper crystals at home. Um, I was wondering if you made any progress on it. Yeah, the video about hopper crystals, salt hopper crystals. So anyone ever gotten like a fancy sea salt where the salt is in the shape of a hollow pyramid? Anyone ever seen that? It's just the best thing in the world because they're crunchy and they're super pretty, right? And like they come most famously from this one uh, you know, sea salt maker um, in the east of England. And the, you know they're not going to tell me their secrets. And I'm not even sure that they know their secrets. Like... If you look at like comments made by people at that company, public comments they've made in the past, it suggests to me that like they're really, you know, they've got a traditional procedure that they've worked out um, that they probably don't fully understand, right? And, and why would they need to, right? If it works, it works. They're, they're, they're not you, they're not scientists. Um, so I, yeah, I found, I found this, uh, this absolutely delightful elder Swiss gentleman who studies salt hopper crystals in his spare time. He's retired, he's a scientist, you know, very, you know, crystallologist, really, really, a really accomplished guy. And he, you know, just sort of researched hopper crystals in his, in his spare time to the point where he actually uh, had an experiment go up to the International Space Station where they made hopper crystals in zero G. And that's all in my video on hopper crystals if you, if you wanna watch it. Um, and yes, it, I was trying to figure out a way to make them at home and I utterly failed. 
to answer your question, um, a young man from Korea, I think, sent me an email like a few months ago saying, hey, I watched your video, I got super excited, I figured out a procedure for making hopper crystals at home, I wrote it up in a blog post, here it is. And I did it and it didn't work. And he was like, oh, so the thing is, is that it only works when it's not humid. Can you, can you do it on a day that's not humid? And I said, in Knoxville, Tennessee, no. I cannot do it on a day that's not humid. So if any, well, I mean, I guess in the winter, it's not humid here. If you want to try it, go for it. But uh, yeah, it didn't work for me. I saw a question in the back. Yeah, are there any videos that you like regret making because the public couldn't quite handle the truth yet? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very flattering way for me to think about it. The question is, is are there any videos I regret publishing because uh, the, the, they couldn't handle the truth, you know? Uh, I have, I am, I'm a, if anyone who knows me knows that I am a ball of regrets. I, I regret so, so very many things and I'm so very uncomfortable around other humans and it's all just, just, just rough. Um, yeah, there's many I regret because I've made mistakes, you know, I've, I've just made straight up factual mistakes. Like in the, the previous episode of this podcast, Oh, this, this works as a correction as well as an answer to your question. That's fantastic. Okay, so in the episode that came out previously, I was talking about this. That's, did you see that study about how tomatoes scream? Tomatoes like emit these different ultrasonic signatures depending on what kind of stress they're undergoing. If they're, if they're dry, they click in one way. And if they're, if they're cut, they'll click in another way. If they have a virus, they'll click in a third way. They, they, seem, to, they seem to vocalize, essentially. Um, so I did a whole episode about that, which was a lot of fun, but what I had to do is I had to, when I got the, the supplementary you know, research files from the researcher with all the sound recordings that they made, they had to sample them at uh, 500,000 samples a second because they're, hyper, they're ultrasonic sounds, way above our human frequency perceptual range, right? So I had to like resample them and slow them way down. I eventually slowed it down 800% um, to make it audible as just a kind of sound. Um, and when I said I slowed it down 800%, I said that that equated to a reduction of eight octaves, which is not right. And I should have known, but like, you know, the other, I guess I'm a, I, I guess I'm still a journalist, I guess, I don't know. So let's say, let's say I'm still a journalist, okay? I think the only difference, I've thought about it a lot, especially having taught journalism at a, you know, at a research institution, right? I think the only difference between journalism what I do, and scholarship, what you do, is that what you do is slow and methodical, and what I do is quick and dirty. Like, that's, I think that's, that's it, you know? And, and therefore, both things are good, they just have different functions, you know? The journalism is the, well, there's an expression, it's the first draft of history, right? Um, so, uh, you know, it's okay that I make mistakes, because the only way for me to not make mistakes like that would be to slow way down. I mean, make, instead of making two things a week, make two things a year, you know, and get them peer reviewed rigorously. And I, you know, I do lots of like verification. I send things to you know, experts all the time when I'm un unsure about them. But in my arrogance, having studied electronic music here at Penn State uh, and like, you know, acoustics and stuff, I kind of figured, oh, I got this right. Yeah. So I stretched the sound out 800% that results in a eight octave drop in pitch because an octave, you know, a sound that's here 
and a sound that's here. Oh, that's not an octave. What the hell? Hold on. I haven't been singing in a long time. Okay, so a sound that's here is 50% as fast as a sound that's here, right? Oh boy, that was, whew. I'll auto-tune that for publication. Uh, so, uh, so that's true, but the thing is, it's like an 800% increased stretch would not result in an eight octave drop. It would, well, let's figure it out. So 800 and a half, 400, that's, that's one octave difference. 400 to 200, that's another octave. And then 200 to 100 is the third octave. And I do 100 to zero, is that four octaves? Well, I don't see certainty on the faces out there, which makes me feel much better about myself. So I'm guessing it's something like that. Whatever it is, it ain't right, okay? 800% is not eight octaves. So I regret that to answer your question if I have regrets. I regret all kinds of you know, minor mistakes and a few major ones that I've made. Um, there are other ones, you know, a few videos where like, I feel really confident about them. I'm happy with how they came out, um, but I, they were received poorly. And so one example that comes to mind, I think actually involved research at Penn State or someone who had gone to Penn State. I wish I could remember her name, but it was a, a younger scholar who had done a piece of study, a study where she was trying to figure out kind of why some people like really hot, spicy, lots of capsaicin and other people don't, right? And what she sort of, you know, her, you know, she, she did a, a few little things and what she kind of, you know, one little correlation that suggested that maybe what's going on with some people who really like to blow their heads off with spiciness is that they're people who, um, you know, want to display how, how, how tolerant of pain they can be as a, as, an, as a display of prowess. And she observed that, you know, that correlation, that attitude seemed to be, not surprisingly, far more common among the male uh, study subjects that she was she was looking at and I just sort of like you know I I try really hard to be I mean it sounds a little silly but I, I try really hard because I know my audience is mostly teenage boys right like I try really hard to be an example of kind of enlightened masculinity with them I guess you know a way that you can like be a dude who's into dude things and you know, putting things down and picking them back up again and running around in circles and whatever dudes want to do, right? But you can also, you know, you know, be somewhat enlightened about things. And so I try to sort of, I try to project a, an, an example of a kind of what a, a, a guy like that could be in the 21st century for my students. And so I like to kind of like, you know, poke at kind of what, what I... I might in this room call toxic masculinity, but I wouldn't use that term on the internet because it's too charged up there, but like it exists, toxic masculinity is a thing. And so I like to kind of take some pokes, some good natured you know, elbows I like to give in the direction of toxic masculinity. And I sort of did that when I was describing that study. And it, what it did was it alienated like the very people that I was trying to you know, reach and persuade and get them to think introspectively about their own motives with things, you know, uh, people, really didn't like it and found it very objectionable. And I, you know, that's, that was a mistake on my part, I guess. So not wild about that. Uh, have we got time for like one, one more? No, we have no questions. We have no time for questions. I'm so sorry. I should have looked at you for approval before. Thank you so much, everybody. You're the best.